And I'm recording with a very interesting setup here, so let's hope it holds out <laughs> for the whole yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, chances are mine's going to give up before you, before yours does. So <laughs> I wouldn't be so sure if you saw a picture of what I'm dealing with here. We could do that. Why don't you take a picture and we put it on the show notes? Yeah, my mobile recording studio. No, but ex if I do that, then it'll reveal that I was an idiot today and forgot my XLR cable, so I'm not able to use my my proper microphone. I'm using the one built into the audio interface. So you, by the way, audience, f forgive my degraded audio quality today. It's totally my fault. Ah, uh, don't don't be so hard on yourself. We still sound better than most shows out there. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, I guess we do. Uh, and of course, this is also our um, our first duo show. Uh, Josh has uh, has left on his little holiday. He was here in Toronto for an hour and a half and didn't bother to visit me, right. <laughs> which really hurt my feelings. But anyway, yeah, he's he's off in Europe and he's already been messaging us with some uh, some thoughts on his setup, which I, I, I'm getting the uh, the impression that he's not as happy with it as he was hoping to be. Yeah, spoiler alert, he's hating his primes and now he wishes he could have a nice zoom lens with him, which is understandable. I mean, it, it's he, he was like between a rock and a hard place for this trip because it's true that so, the Sony zooms are not really mind-blowing, uh, so I get why he, he preferred to take primes with him. But you, yeah, at the end of the day, for a trip like his, a zoom lens is always going to be just a lot more convenient. So yeah, yeah, I, I kind of get where he's coming from. Yeah, I look forward to hearing his more developed thoughts when he's back. But I think that what maybe uh, he wasn't anticipating is that he doesn't need the shallow depth of field and really fast apertures as much as he thought. Because you remember he was telling us about wanting to get those shallow depth of field portrait style shots, um, like travel portraits. And I guess he just is finding himself right. not needing that as much as just versatility. So... And he was this close to uh, changing everything up at the last minute because the realization that you just mentioned kind of dawned on him like 48 hours before he left. Yeah. And so, yeah, maybe he, maybe that's also part of the reason that he went in with that mindset already and he's just kind of confirming his, his fears. But we'll find out when we talk more about that with him. We will. I'm pretty sure we'll, we'll hear more from him in the, in the next few days. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, but we should dig into some of the stuff that's happened this week in the photography-related world. Um, one of the things in the wake of these uh, WWDC and Apple's announcements, um, someone pointed out a, a bit of a, maybe a concern with um, one of the macOS features. And I actually um, remember mentioning this to you guys in Slack when I was watching the live stream. Um, so if you haven't seen the live stream, one of the things that is coming to macOS is Siri. And Siri has a few cool features on the Mac, one of which is the ability to help you search for images and then kind of store them for you in the notification center until you need them. And then from there, you can directly drag and drop the images that you've searched for into a document or a message or wherever you need them. Which is an awesome feature, by the way. Yeah, it's it's terrific and it's very convenient. And I know that um, a lot of people will use it because there are actually a number of third-party utilities that, that function as... Um, you know, I, I forget now off the top of my head, I can't think of one, but there are those apps that kind of live off on one side of your screen and you can just drag text or images and they hold them there for you until you need them. Yeah. So now that's basically built in. The problem is, and, and we have an article where this author has uh, described the issue, um, this 
relies on Bing's image search, which is great, but it doesn't really allow you to filter the search results by usage rights, which means that it's it makes it very, very easy to inadvertently violate image copyrights when you're doing this because you search for an image and you don't really take the time to check what the usage rights are for that image. So you end up using it in a document or something like that. And again, this happens a lot. And um, the, it's not so much a problem of like, oh, you're going to get sued or something like that. It's more the principle that is bothersome, especially to us as photographers, because it basically makes it very, very easy for a lot of people to misuse images. Right. This is definitely a very, very delicate issue because as it is, the current situation makes it already way too easy to inadvertently grab an image without being aware that it may be copyrighted or something like that. Yeah. So the the existing situation on the web, if you do it on a if you do the search uh, on a web browser, is not much better. Yes, there are filters, but how many people actually use those? I think it's a clearly a minority of yeah. people. So the the situation was already too bad, and and the problem here is that Apple's latest feature is actually making it worse, or could make it worse. Let's let's be fair. And on a giant scale, right? Because that's the big issue is there. This is like part of a mainstream operating system and it's a core feature. So this is something that will get a lot of use. Exactly. Um, and that's that's really dangerous if they don't find a way to clarify in the UI what is actually happening and what responsibilities are um, are, are left with people. And and this this seems like, again, it seems like an issue that that um, the layperson won't care about because they'll just continue stealing images. I mean, I know a lot of people just, right. you know, Google image search and drag it in and they don't give a second thought to attribution or anything like that. But the problem is that this is actually something that can cause you problems. And I learned this the hard way when a family member um, actually got um, fined quite heavily by Getty Images for having used a number of images that they just pulled from a Google search on their blog. And right. they, they were doing this for quite a while. And, uh, you know, Get, Getty pursued them to the tune of, um, I think it was over a thousand dollars for wow. several of the images. So it's not, you know, it's not a small problem. And it's not like um, their blog did not get a lot of traffic. It's not like they were profiting off of it, off it or anything like that. But it is something that opens you up to individual risk. And and that's even, you know, that's setting aside the fact that it's wrong to um, steal those images from the photographers who uh, generally have every, you know, desire in the world to have you use them, but with a license or with attribution right. or whatever. So I just think that Apple here has done, um, and, and maybe it's just an undercooked feature, like maybe the what they showed off and what we're seeing in the beta is not the final form. But as it stands right now, it's just kind of concerning. Right. That's exactly what that was going to be my next point, which is that we should still try to keep an open an open mind here and uh, try to look at this with perspective, because this is just a beta for now. So the fact that right now in its current incarnation, there's not a way to filter the results doesn't mean that there won't be such a filter in the final release version. Yeah. So that's a way that could sort of make this problem a non-issue really because it would be equating it to the situation on a web browser and that's the status quo so people wouldn't have any extra reasons to complain about this yeah. uh, as far as Apple's concerned. Then there's also the matter of uh, I think the way this feature is designed is this is clearly intended for casual use like for uh, attaching a picture to an email send it send it to a friend or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So 
at some level, I kind of understand that it's not worth it to get so uh, intense about the rights issue because this is just casual. What, what most people would consider fair use of most images. Yeah. Now, I believe if you're going to look for pictures to use on a commercial project or on a document where you might be violating someone's rights, I think the burden should fall on the user, not on Apple necessarily. So it's your responsibility as a user to take care, to, to take the extra precautions and make sure that the images that you're using are fair to use, basically. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I mean, that is ultimately always the user's responsibility. It's just a problem because if Apple makes the default this way, then it's actually, um, because most people don't think of this uh, in general, I think it's just opening everyone up to more potential problems. And I'm not being critical of them yet because, again, we don't really know what the final form of this will look like. Um, but it is something that I'm glad to see being discussed openly. And hopefully Apple is um, putting some thought into how this feature will be implemented. And it might be something as simple as making the default so that your searches are, uh, you know, Creative Commons or uh, public domain or something like that, which, again, there's a trade-off there too, because obviously there's many images that are Creative Commons, very few that are public domain. Right. Um, you know, most of them are rights managed in one way or another. So it's it's it looks bad for Apple, you know, as a feature if your searches don't turn up a lot of images. Right. Even though those images are the ones you could actually conceivably use without worrying about them. So it's uh, yeah, they're they're stuck between a rock and a hard place here. But I, I do think that it's something they have to resolve because it's such a mainstream part of the operating system now like this is a this is a headlining feature right and also just kind of going on a, on a tangent here but uh, since the accuracy of the search results is so important for this feature to actually be useful and to for it to be adopted by the users uh, I find it very interesting that they decided to go with Bing as the search engine that's powering the feature as opposed to Google right uh, I mean of course Apple and Google couldn't be more pitted against each other. Uh, right now in the industry because they're competing for the same uh, space, basically. Yeah. But but at the end of the day, Apple so far has always made the choice of going with the best, uh, the the best option on a technical level. You know. Well, that's not entirely true. I mean, they did adopt Bing Search as the default for Siri. Yeah, but those you can change, right? Oh, of course. Yeah, but I'm just saying, like, the, this is we're talking about the defaults that they're that they're choosing, yeah, yeah. and I, I feel like that's. They, they have a relationship there that they need to maintain. So even though, yes, I, I, obviously Google image search might produce better results or more nuanced results, um, they they have to have Bing, at least as the default. Um, so we'll, we'll see how that feature evolves. But again, I'm glad that it's being discussed. And uh, the whole the whole concept really of, of rights managed images and dealing with that is a uh, is a topic that we should dig into um, in a future episode. Right. Because there's a lot of, um, I, I think there's a lot of, uh, confusion around usage rights in general, especially for something like images, because it's so easy to just inadvertently steal them. We don't even have a sense that we're doing something wrong in a lot of cases. Absolutely. But also to be fair, I don't think 90% of the people are the problem here. I think of course. the casual the casual user who just grabs an image, like I said, for, yeah. for a one-time thing, that's not the problem because that's going to happen and it's going to keep happening basically as long as the internet is around. So yeah. the, the problem are people who knowingly grab images and make use of them without without compensating or even crediting the 
the creators of the images. So that's something that I think should, we should try to keep separate from the discussion. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, you know, that was something that, that started um, a bit of a back and forth discussion. Um, we'll link to the article in the show notes so you can t take a look as well. Um, one of the other things that we learned in the wake of the presentation was that the whole unbundling apps thing is uh, not exactly what we thought. So first of all, it looks like we won't be able to choose an alternative default to handle whatever task it is that we care about. Um, but also unbundling does not mean that the apps get removed when you quote unquote remove them from your phone. It basically just hides the icon and some of the um, user cache data, but it allows the actual app itself to remain on your phone. And so when you click the little get button um, to bring it back, it, it essentially just reappears. And in some cases, they've said you, you basically don't even have anything to download. It'll just reactivate the app. So it, it is really more hiding the app than removing it. Absolutely. And this is this is extremely clever engineering, if you ask me, because the, the explanation for why they did it this way is related to security. Yeah they cannot modify parts of the OS without altering the signature, which would make it essentially a different piece of software as far as the phone is concerned. So yeah. the hardware would refuse to run the OS as soon as you modified it. Yeah. And in order to sort of uh, work around that, what they do is just they hide it and they disable the hooks that connect the app with the user actions. And that's how they get to effectively make those apps disappear. And just the, the reason why they are in the App Store is just for consistency's sake, yep. just so that users can keep a consistent routine and they don't have to change the way they install and uninstall apps. It all keeps just working the way it always has. And it's I think it's a clever solution, personally. Yeah, I agree entirely. Uh, I mean, it, it's obviously um, it's obviously something that they spent a lot of time working on because Tim Cook, um, you know, went on the record saying that it was a problem that was more difficult to solve than it would you know appear to be on the surface. Right. Um, and and this solution makes a lot of sense to me. I do think that a lot of people are going to be frustrated by it because they would like to remove it, uh, you know, remove these apps entirely, and they don't really understand the security angle or they don't care about it. Um, and ultimately, what we were all hoping for, you know, the, the power users of iOS were hoping for an ability to designate other apps as the defaults for those tasks. Yeah. Um, and, and that's something that is, uh, looks like it's not happening, or at least if it is, we, we don't really have any concrete signs of it um, right now. So we'll see. Right. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised at this point if it turned out that that's just not going to happen. And it may well be that the security concern is at the heart of that. They just don't really have an elegant way to designate a third-party app as the handler for a certain kind of event without um, without compromising the level of security that they would like to maintain for the operating system as a whole. Well, I think they're sort of providing a solution to that problem uh, by the way of extensions. Like that's the Apple-sanctioned way that you can designate your preferred app to take yeah. care of a certain task. Like if you are, if you want to share a link and your desired app has implemented an extension that allows you to do just that, you can just pick that up in the share menu and we, that should all just work. So Apple is trying to educate users and that you don't really need to have a default app. You just need to learn to use extensions and basically you can, you can get away with having that functionality, but not in the way that we've traditionally 
thought of it. Yeah, I think the problem there is a user education one, right? Because there's a certain expectation that we can just do it sort of as easily as it works on Android because, you know, we've got friends who use Android and it's like, oh, yeah, you can just tap a thing and it automatically opens in the app of your choice. It's magical. And meanwhile, we're stuck with the extensions, which, like you said, they work. And it's it's the way that iOS intends us to work around this problem, but it feels a lot less immediate. And uh, and I think a lot of people are clamoring to get um, parity there in terms of just how uh, seamless this task is. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, maybe we'll get there, maybe we won't. Either way, now we know a little better what Apple's intentions were with that whole unbundling thing. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And like, like always with Apple, there are probably just reasons that the company is keeping to to itself yeah. why, as to why they're not allowing that just yet. They may do it in the future if people are uh, claiming for it, like are asking for it strongly enough. Yeah. Uh, or they may not. Yeah, we, we never know with them, unfortunately. But That's true. That's just how it is. <laughs> we also learned uh, a few more details about the whole raw editing and raw capture side of things. You were watching the, um, the WWDC session video the other day. Oh my, that was super impressive. Super impressive. I have to give it to them. Like I wasn't expecting them to get these, uh, like in, in in such depth uh, on the raw file format support. So tell us tell us a bit more about how they're implementing it. Well, they're basically doing it in a very similar way to how it's always worked on Mac OS, previously known as OS X. You know, they, they, it's up to Apple to implement support for every camera and and. Uh, yeah, every camera model from every manufacturer. So uh, it it hasn't really changed in that in that respect. It looks like our hopes that this might uh, contribute to improving the whole raw file mess situation that we've had in, to endure in the industry for years now. Uh, it doesn't look like it's going to happen, but at least we're getting what it looks like feature parity with uh, with the desktop uh, operating system, which is certainly more than I was expecting. Uh, Apple even says that they've managed to match the performance of the, the raw pipeline. Uh, they, they've actually achieved the same performance as the one they have on, on Mac OS. Which is amazing. Yeah, it's really impressive. And then they, the session kind of got into all kinds of technical details uh, about how to read uh, that raw data from the sensor and how to perform calculations. You know, basically the way that you the way that you work with a raw file is you have to deduce uh, values from the surrounding pixels by making a number of reads on certain pixels of the, on the sensor and you kind of extrapolate from that and kind of create the whole picture by doing all sorts of calculations, which is computationally, it's very intensive. Right, yeah. Uh, so they've managed to reduce the number of calculations needed like dramatically and that's impressive, like really, really clever stuff. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm really impressed, and I'm I'm hopeful that once we see it in action, it's gonna make it a lot more feasible for serious photographers to adopt an iOS device of, as their photo editing device of choice. One thing that I really look forward to on this front is seeing um, what the iPhone RAWs look like, because I know that um, you know when I was testing the Galaxy S7, for instance, and it has native RAW shooting. Um, those raw files are really ugly. Um, like there, it takes, <laughs> you know, it, it really makes you appreciate the amount of effort that Apple and other phone manufacturers go to, um, 
to try and and make beautiful JPEGs out of the raw data because uh, you know small sensors suffer. I mean, especially for those of us who are used to working with cameras that have full frame sensors or you know even micro four thirds. Um, the the difference in quality between the raw file um, that I got out of the Galaxy S7, for instance, versus uh, any of the cameras that I've shot with is just vast. Um, and it yeah. takes a lot of work to get them looking the way that they do by default with the JPEG files. So I, I kind of, I wonder um, what people are going to, like what the reaction is going to be and how um, how good the iPhone sent, because this is ultimately, this is going to be um, the, the clearest indication of how good the iPhone's actual imaging sensor is, right? Is looking at the raw data. Look, what does this, Absolutely. you know, what does this photo look like without, Apple's processing magic. And I can't wait. I mean, it's something that uh, I've been curious about for a long time now. And, you know, I mean, there've been apps on the App Store that um, claim to give you raw shooting, but really all they're doing is taking the image data before one of the JPEG compression right. um, steps in the image pipeline as it exists today, which means that you're you're getting a TIFF file essentially um, which is still not actually a raw file. I mean, they call it a raw file and I've always thought it's a little disingenuous, but um, <laughs> now we're getting actual raw file support and, and and that should be exciting. I think this is a really tricky feature to present to the public because yeah. uh, people at large, especially those who are not familiar with how photography works, they vastly underestimate just how much software processing Apple uses uh, on the camera to yeah. to create those JPEGs that you see in the in the camera roll. So there's no doubt when you get your first look at a raw picture captured from the iPhone, it's going to look a lot worse than those JPEGs. Yeah. And that's very hard to explain to people. Like, this is supposed to be a great feature, but the pictures that you're actually going to see are going to look worse to you. There's a, there's a conflict there. And it, you, you need to get into details as to what you can do with those, those raw uh, files for that to make sense. So I get why in such a short, key, uh, sh such a packed keynote, they couldn't get into this. I was wondering why they didn't even mention it, and it's probably got something to do with this. Yeah, I would think so. And my my impression is that what they'll do is probably in the Photos app itself, they'll always show you the embedded JPEG. Yeah, like you'll never you're you're never actually going to see the very very neutral. Um, raw uh, interpretation. You're going to always see the JPEG, but the presence of the raw will allow you a lot more latitude in editing those photos. And I think that that's the way that they're going to um, present it to the end user. And of course, the rest of us will know that we've got that raw file. We can pull it off. We can work with it, whatever. But in terms of how you know, 90% of iOS users are going to experience this, it's literally just going to be, hey, if you do edit your photos, which as we discussed on another episode, most people I think really don't make use of those editing tools. But if you do, now you're going to get a lot more leeway in what you can adjust and in how good it will look when you do that. So we'll, we'll see, but either way, it's really exciting. One thing that I'm curious about is a bit of a logistics problem because on uh, on Mac OS or OS X as we know it now, we're kind of used to Apple having to issue camera specific updates when new camera technology is released, right? They, they right. Um, have in the app store, just, you know, raw support now is extended to these new cameras. Yep. Um, but the iOS release cycle does not really allow them to do that if it's something that's going to be tied to the OS. So what I'm curious about is whether or not they're going to accelerate their, um, their release schedule in general, like if we're going to see more frequent iOS updates, or if they found a way to deliver 
these raw specific updates separately from the OS itself? Uh, no, as far as they said it, as far as they said in the session, it's tied to uh, to OS updates. Right. Yeah. Because what concerns me is what happens if the release schedule stays the same, but of course camera technology moves a lot faster than iOS updates do. So you'll end up right. with a camera that's not supported for months, and that's just kind of a bad user experience, especially if on the Mac it is supported first. Well, if you think about it, inter if if we take iOS nine as an example, we're already at, at what is it like nine point three uh, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So there have been quite a few updates in less than a year already. Uh, I think that's good enough, really, because how often do uh, new cameras get released? I mean, yeah, there are lots well. of cameras entering the market <laughs> right now, but but you only need to to get the support once. I mean, so you're probably in the worst case scenario going to have to wait for what three months. Uh, it's not really yeah. that much longer than what you have to wait for on the Mac. Yeah, it's not the end of the world. It's just something that I, I thought would be an opportunity for them to accelerate that. And uh, we'll see. I mean, I, I I have gotten the impression in general that they've been more generous with um, point updates and things like that. Like there there have been more of them. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, it may or may not be a, a sign that they're accelerating things. Either way, um, being able to have the same image processing intelligence across iOS and macOS at the same performance level uh, is very, very cool. And I, I can't wait for more apps like the Affinity Photo preview that we saw yeah. um, last week to, uh, to emerge because that's just going to be... Um, it's going to be very cool. And what's going to be even better is seeing how developers come up with ways to um, share workflows between Mac and iOS. Yeah, Because definitely. that's, you know, another thing, like, especially they're going to have to come up with clever ways to get around the storage concerns that we talked about. Um, and I think they will. I mean, I think that this is a problem that they've been eagerly waiting to solve. And now they finally have the tools available to them to, uh, to solve it. So it's going to be great. Yeah. And since they managed to create basically the same uh, raw processing chain for both platforms, uh, syncing raw edits across them should be fairly easy to implement for third-party developers. Yeah. And Apple themselves, they, they demoed a, a photo editing extension um, that uses these raw capabilities during the session, and it looks amazing. And if that's going to be available to all photography apps, it means basically every app gets raw editing support for free. <laughs> yeah. Like now I'm not sure if Apple plans to actually release that that extension to the public or if it was just a demo for WWDC purposes, but it was definitely something that I, I, I think has a lot of potential and it'll, it'll be interesting to see what they do with it. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so speaking of photo editing applications that could get uh, a whole lot more capable shortly, thanks to these raw editing capabilities that Apple just implemented, uh, one of those is undoubtedly Instagram, and that's one that I think many people are kind of looking to as the reference photo app in their phones and their iOS devices, but not everything is... Uh, this is looking so great for Instagram lately. Yeah, there was a there was an interesting little study that popped up um, that was pointing out a drop in the interactions that are occurring on Instagram, um, and it's quite a dramatic drop. They they yeah. are averaging out thirty three percent over the last year, um, and by interactions they mean like um, liking or commenting things like that. Um, 
And it's it's an interesting statistic. Um, their conclusion, this study was uh, was actually done by a company called Quintly. Um, but anyway, they, their conclusion is that it probably has something to do with the growth overall of users on the network. There are a lot of people. Yeah. The amount of posting has gone up a lot. Um, and so they're thinking that it's just a, a sort of indirect result of that as more people are posting and as more people are on the network it's just difficult for the engagement to stay as high as it was and and we've actually mentioned this before instagram was um one of the reasons that it was such a uh, big target for advertisers was because the engagement was uncommonly high yeah and i think now what we're seeing is that that's beginning to settle down to more um normal levels so i'm not really concerned by this um on any level it's just a it's an interesting data point yeah it's an interesting data point but it has some pretty pretty potentially serious uh repercussions because i'm experiencing this problem myself in the way that i use the app like uh, as as the list of people you follow grows and grows, your timeline suddenly gets it, it just goes by way too fast for it yeah. to be to be entertaining. Even I mean, you're always looking at new stuff, but the stuff from people you know and from people you you want to follow is a lot harder to find. Is what I'm getting at. And conversely, yeah. the stuff that you post gets far less engagement from the people you know. I mean, you might get more likes overall because you have more followers. But the people that will comment, the people that, that you know your friends won't see your pictures because it'll just be buried among thousands upon thousands of other pictures. And that makes it, yeah, it makes it a lot harder for it to stick, for the usage to stick if, if it's not uh, something that you can relate to. Yeah, and this is where Instagram's um, algorithmic timeline comes in, right? I mean, I, that's this is exactly yeah. the problem that that is designed to solve. And whether or not it's going to be successful is open for uh, debate. And it's, it's so new that its contributions are not actually included in this particular set of data. So we'll, we'll have to see over the next year as the algorithmic timeline actually makes an impact on the network, um, whether or not it's, it's helping to solve that problem. Because ideally, that is what it's designed to do is surface um, the images of people who are actually important to you, right? Um, so that you're not missing those things. Because yeah, otherwise, it's just it's a tremendous amount of, of noise, especially with, um, I mean, I don't know if this is true of your experience as well. But a lot of my friends, um, the way they use Instagram is almost, um, I mean, it's not practical for people who want to see everything because they follow people, even if they don't necessarily like their images, they, they follow just because, oh, you're my friend in real life, so I'm going to follow you on Instagram. And that just means that if you have a lot of friends, you, you know, you've got a big social circle, you end up with a totally um, impossible to follow Instagram feed. Whereas yeah. for, for me, it's kind of not an issue either way because I don't follow that many people. I mean, I try and follow people whose work I actually like. And, and yes, my friends are in there, but it's not like I don't, I'm, I'm careful with who I follow, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, yeah. You know, I used to do that myself, but I gave up a long time ago. Okay. <laughs> so, and I, and I find my usage of the app is a lot happier now. I mean, I may not, I may not engage as much with content from my real life friends, but right. but I just don't care about it anymore. I started following people willy-nilly and, and and I didn't stop to think about how many people am I following, how many pictures a day am I seeing. I just yeah. don't care about that anymore. Yeah. I mean, I don't follow like the way that I actually read Instagram is not to try and keep up with every possible post because it's just not 
um, I don't know. That's that's not fun to me. So I right. I browse and whatever it shows me, you know, I go through. But I'm not I'm not a completionist when it comes to uh, to my Instagram feed. Yeah, and ever since Josh pointed out the Explore tab to me, like I've been living there basically. Every yeah, time I launch great. the app, I go there first. <laughs> yeah, and then every day I follow like 20 new people, <laughs> and, and so yeah, yeah, it, it kind of gets messy, but. It's okay. Yeah. It is good though. I mean, it that's that's ideally what it is for, right? Is is helping you broaden your horizons a little bit as a photographer, I guess. At least you know yeah. we're, we're not on it just as a social tool. We're on it also as a, a bit of a portfolio, a bit of a an eye opening kind of way to explore what other fellow yes. photographers are doing. And uh, from from that perspective, it's it's tremendous. I mean, and what I'm finding too, and it's something that I'm not too happy about, but it, it's what's happened is that it's completely or almost completely killed uh, my Flickr usage. Like I still use Flickr as a platform to host the images that are on my website, for example. Yeah. But I don't browse my Flickr timeline anymore. Uh, not nearly as much as I as I used to do. Yeah. Uh, and that's because of Instagram. So there you go. Yeah, I don't think you're the only one there. I, I think a lot of people are finding that they're uh, because there's only so much time that you can dedicate to any given social endeavor. Um, for a lot of photographers, I think there's just been a, a, a need to pick one and then kind of just focus on it. And right now, the one to pick is is pretty much Instagram. I mean, for, for any number yeah. of reasons, uh, that's that's sort of the place to be. And, and yes, it has disadvantages when it comes to uh, like the size of the images and things like that, you're never going to be able to, it's not a great host for people who like no, show off isn't. like to pixel peepers and things like that, but it is a great place for uh, showcasing things in general and for interacting. And I, I know that for me, I, I was never a huge user of, uh, of Flickr or 500 pixels um, in general, but now I definitely prioritize Instagram um, and, and I'm not even really sure it's, it's a bit of a problem, actually. I'm not sure where those other networks fit in the, in the picture of like a modern photographer's web presence. Like what are they for really? Is it, is it hosting images? Is that the, you know, like an archival sort of backup? Is it a, a way to share albums with people? I mean, that's the one thing that, that I'm pulling out right now is it's, right. it's a much better way to host a set of images and be able to reliably point people to a set of images, which on Instagram is currently not really possible. Yeah. Um, so it, they, they still have their their uses, but it's uh, it's increasingly difficult to justify the time required to manage those accounts with the same level of uh, diligence that that we may be used to. So um, good on Instagram for for capturing the market <laughs> from them like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let's um, let's move on to some uh, some speculation, and this is Sony speculation primarily. So you're gonna you're gonna want to tell me about what uh, things I can be jealous of next. Oh, this was a pretty cool thing. Okay, so I came across this video from Tony Northrup where he's speculating about the uh, what he expects to see released from the big camera manufacturers in the remainder of 2016 and also during 2017. So basically, he's just kind of like predicting what's going to come next from Canon, from Nikon, from Sony, yeah, uh, and even Pentax uh, for the three people that use Pentax out there. But... <laughs> Yeah, uh, there's there's a lot of interesting stuff here, and I think I agree with most of what he said. I'm not sure about the price points he chose because some of those seem pretty ridiculous to me. But uh, well, let's let's go over those in a little bit more detail and see and see what you think. For example, he's predicting a new Sony A9, which is a 
uh, rumor that's been circulating for a really long time yep. that Sony is going to release uh, a mirrorless camera lineup that is going to be aimed mainly to professional photographers and therefore will be uh, bigger, heavier, more robust than the A7 series cameras. Essentially a direct replacement to the DSLR just built on mirrorless technology instead. Exactly, without emphasizing aspects like size and weight. Yeah. Like they're, they're willing to they're willing to compromise on the perceived advantage of size and weight in the mirrorless industry and just create the best camera for professionals that they can that they can make. Yeah. Uh, so it would be like their equivalent to the Leica SL basically. Right. Yeah, actually I hadn't thought of that, but that's that's the the most obvious parallel. Yeah. Uh, so Tony is predicting that the new A9 camera is going to have a 24 megapixel sensor, which it doesn't make much sense in the beginning when you think about it. But then as you go through the rest of his proposed specs, it kind of starts making more sense uh, because he's proposing or he's predicting rather uh, a frame rate, a burst rate of 20 frames per second, which is just insanely high. Yeah, so it would basically be a direct competitor to the D5 and the, the 1DX, right? Rather than the megapixel king, it's it's the speed demon. Exactly, and it's almost like recording video. At, uh, once you reach 20 frames per second, it's you're nearly at the 24 frames per second, which used to be the standard for video a long time ago. Yeah. So that it's it's just an incredible burst rate. So uh, in order to be able to process all that data, it's, it, you have to compromise on the resolution of the sensor, basically, because you cannot record 20 pictures that are 50 megabytes each. It's just, it doesn't work. Yeah. Even with the QXD card technology, is it QXD? Yeah. XQD? XQD. XQD. Yeah. Um, even with that card technology, which does allow for um, very, very um, like large buffers, high speeds, things like that, it's, there's other problems to take into account, like heat um, and just processing so uh, do you know how fast is the current burst rate of the like the nikon uh, d5 for example which i think is the fastest right now uh i would have to look it up i don't know off the top of my head i remember it being very impressive but i don't think it's at 20 i'm not i think it's around 11 or something like that i could be wrong yeah something like that something like that but what tony says in the video and it, it makes a lot of sense is that uh since there's no mechanical parts moving inside a mirrorless camera you can actually have virtually as fast a burst rate as your image processor can, can handle. Can keep up with, there, yeah. Yeah, there's not a mechanical limitation, which is not the case with DSLRs. So right. that's something that in theory would allow Sony to reach this 20 frames per second uh, burst rate yep. that right now is unmatched by any other thing in the industry. So that's pretty interesting. Then we have on the video front, uh, 4K video recording, of course, at 30 frames per second. I'm curious because this insanely high burst rate, in theory, should enable the camera to capture 4K at 60 frames per second. I mean, I haven't actually done the math, but it, intuitively, they they must be comparable. Well, it, the problem is not the frame rate. The problem is that when you're recording video, um, the, the format difference and the processing requirements on that front are a limitation. Right. So even though you could theoretically capture stills, um, the, the fact that you have to weave them together with the right codec um, right. as a video makes it less, uh, it's, it's not really a directly comparable thing. Um, now, given Sony's prowess for tremendous computing power in those cameras, I wouldn't be surprised if they managed a higher frame rate than 30 at 4K. 
um, but it's it's just not a given. Well, he's actually this is something that if you want we can get into more detail later. But he's actually predicting 4K at 60 frames per second on the on the A7S three, yeah, right on the yeah. A7S three, which is interesting because if you think that they will surely have comparable image processors, and if anything, the one in the A9 should be more powerful than the one on the A7S three. So I don't really understand why he's going there in one direction for one camera and in the opposite direction for the other. Probably so that he's hedging his bets and will be right for at least one of them. <laughs> yeah, that could be. That could uh, be the case. <laughs> uh, here's here's what I want to ask you, because basically, um, for, for people who haven't watched the video, on, on the Sony front, he's predicting quite a number of cameras because you've basically got the A9 and then you've got an A9R and then you've got the A7R3 and then the a 7 and then the A7S 3 So it's it's quite a number of cameras. And I think that logically, all of the ones that he's proposed, the models make sense. But yeah. I wonder if from Sony's perspective, they might take this opportunity to consolidate a little bit. Um, like, is there really justification for them to have both an A7 and an A7R Mark III? Because those two, to me, are starting to converge a little bit. And I'm not sure that it makes sense for them to have them separate anymore especially if the right. a9 series is going to take over the you know tremendous speed and tremendous high resolution thing like to me that makes that makes sense like if you not if you want sony but incredibly fast you get the a9 if you want sony you're not so uh, concerned about incredibly fast but you want a rugged amazing landscape body with huge resolution right you go for the a9r that makes sense to me but back at the a7 level it's it's starting to become a little cloudier whether or not they can, whether or not they should have two models at that level. Well, I think Tony here has painted himself into a quarter in the way that he's assumed features for each tier of camera. Uh, for example, like I said, with the price, he's, he's set prices of over $6,000 for the A9 models, both the A9 and the A9R. And he's also created a huge megapixel difference between the two. Yeah, it's vast. So that, that makes sense, but that in itself requires the existence of more models whereas if you don't have such so much variety you could do you could make do with fewer models potentially uh let's see for example he's predicting the a7r3 will have a 75 megapixel sensor i'm not sure it, it makes sense to include such a high-res sensor on a small body because that's gonna require that's gonna eat through batteries like crazy basically. Especially if they don't change the battery for the A7 exactly. family. That, so, that's so, going to be bad. So that doesn't make much sense to me. Uh, just like it doesn't really make sense to have the A9, both A9 models have this super huge body that he's predicting. I think there's room to have an A9 with a big body and an A9 with a smaller body. And that would kind of eliminate the need for an A7R3, basically. But then wouldn't that second A9 effectively be the a7r mark iii yeah yeah it would just be a rebranding of the a7r which is for all intents and purposes it is a professional camera it is yeah absolutely it's just carried over a design that is not without faults it's like the a7r2 overheats it eats batteries like crazy it even comes with two batteries in the box which is just ridiculous yeah so so People are already complaining about several important limitations on the A7R2, so it, I think if they're going to make it better, it would be enough of an improvement to call it an A9 camera and just be done with it. 
I don't think we need to keep both lines. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. My my thing is that if they're going to do that, I would like to see it have the same body size and ruggedness as the the sort of de facto A9, right? I mean, I don't want it to be as small as the A7R is right now because I think that to really make that camera compelling in a way that its DSLR competitors are, yes. um, you have to not only have the technology at the forefront of the industry, which it is, but you have to also have the ruggedness there. You have to have the um, battery life there. And right now, Sony doesn't really have that. So if they're going to develop it anyway for the A9, I would just, I'd rather have the two A9s and then the A7 just takes a, a smaller seat. Like they do yeah. maybe one of them or something like that. I don't know. but Absolutely, but there's room between the current A7R2 and the massive A9 that Tony Northrup is predicting. Like, like if yeah. we compare it in size to a Canon 1DX, for example, there's room to make a bigger camera than the A7R2 while still being smaller than the Canon 1DX. Yeah, yeah. So think of it like they could just be the upper half of the camera without the grip. The grip could be an add-on choice. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I, I think my, my main thing is just that because he's proposed so many models, um, in my head, it just seems like too many. Like, I, I don't know how practical it is for Sony to um, develop and support and, uh, you know, sort of work on so many things in parallel because it's it's a lot of effort. Like, these cameras are extremely sophisticated. There's a lot of research that goes into them and supporting them is not that easy. So um, I would rather that they actually shrink the lineup a little bit, keep them at the, you know, forefront of the industry, which again, I, I doubt is going to change anytime soon, Yeah. Um, but spend the rest of that money and effort developing their professional support, for example, um, you know, maybe their lens lineup, whatever it takes. Like, I think that, that those areas are currently lacking more than their camera tech itself, especially if the A9 is out there and it addresses the uh, the ruggedness and battery life angles. Yeah. Like if that's as soon as there's an A9 out there, that's fine. I mean, I don't I don't really get the sense that photographers using the Sony system today are being like, ah, you know, it's great, but I sure wish that instead of you know 50 or 40 megapixels, I had 70 megapixels. Like I, I'm not right. <laughs> I'm not hearing much of that. You know what I mean? So no, me neither. Me neither. No, but there's been rumors of a. Uh... Sony 75 megapixels yeah. for a long time and it's up it's actually even been demoed by Sony so it's not a question of if it's at this point a question of when oh yeah and I'm sure that they could you know release it's not really like a a question of whether or not they're capable of doing it it's just like is that the best use of their resources I guess is is what I'm asking myself so we'll see I think neither the the a7r or the a7s I don't think they need to keep existing if Sony comes up with an A9 and an A9R. I, would, I wouldn't I would be surprised if both of those kind of morphed into a more proper professional bodies. You know what I mean? I don't know. I mean, the A7S is the one that I think has the most potential to remain there. If they're going to cut one, it's going to be the A7R or something like that, or the normal A7, because the A7S is now I think it's established itself as for video filmmakers yeah. yeah and and I think that they can really push that angle because even within the Sony ecosystem you'll always have the FS7 and the FS5 and all those that are um you know sort of the next level of videography tool but the form factor of the a7s and especially its low light capabilities are um unmatched still yeah and they are very very appealing i mean we decided on it was our decision was between an a7s and the gh4 and i know that if the a7s3 comes out and it does 
4K at 60 frames per second, or like Tony is predicting, 6K at uh, at 30 frames per second. That would be insane. And if it can do it with the same level of low light performance that the um, series is is so famous for, I mean that's that's almost an insta buy for an agency like mine, where we that's exactly the kind of tool that works best for the kind of shooting that we do. Because yes, we could buy an FS7, but that's not, it, it what it requires in terms of workflow and things like that is less practical than having the form factor of an A7S. And it might even be so much so that we're willing to put up with the uh, poor battery life and, and things like that. So I'm, I'm very excited about the A7S successor and I hope that they keep it. Because if they drop that line, um, I think that would be a misstep on their part. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I could see that happening. Uh, it's also interesting that he's proposing that the the entry level A7, which would be the Mark III, yeah, is basically going to remain at the same price point it's always been, which is about sixteen hundred US dollars. Right. Yeah. Which is a very attractive entry point into the full frame uh, world. It makes a lot of sense to keep that around. So I think he's mostly right there. Uh, yeah. So basically, that's. That's all he's predicting, and it's a lot of stuff. But if we get half of what he's ask, what he's asking for, I'm going to consider myself pretty happy. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be it's going to be a very interesting Photokina event in general. Um, yeah, I, I think we're going to see a lot of things, um, and on all fronts. I mean, Sony's going to have uh, the full frame stuff. Um, Fuji will obviously have their presence. Micro Four Thirds, I think, is going to be. Uh, a lot of people are going to be looking very carefully at what they do in terms of the next EM1 because it will kind of, uh, you know, dictate the future of that format in general. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot riding on the EM1 Mark II to kind of keep the format alive and healthy and um, and viable for professionals going forward. And right now, if they just adopt the um, that Panasonic 20 meg uh, megapixel sensor that is in the Pen F and things like that. I don't think that that's going to work because the the core issues with Micro Four Thirds, which is you know dynamic range and low light performance, those are not really improved by the 20 megapixel sensor. Like I, right. I it's not the resolution that bothered me about that system. It was always the low light um, capabilities and the uh, comparatively little dynamic range yeah uh, so so that's that's where they I think they should focus with that sensor and so hopefully they're they're introducing a, a brand new sensor that is specific to that flagship and then you know we'll, we'll see what that will look like and how it'll function but either way um, I think Tony's predictions um, are, are on point here for the most part they're certainly interesting um, he's also mentioning some stuff about the 5d mark 4 yeah and the uh, the uh, 820, so maybe you can walk us through what he thinks is happening there. Well, he basically is predicting evolutionary updates of both cameras, and the 5D Mark III has been over for four years now, and yes, Canon released the 5DSR and the 5DS uh, last year to kind of make up for the lack of uh, new camera models for such a long time. Yeah. But then again, Canon has never been one to rush. I was going to say, their their pace of development is always slower. Yeah, and I remember uh, back when I bought the A7 II, it's, it's been over a year now, and I was considering the uh, Canon 6D as a possible uh, alternative. And I held on, like, I held off, sorry, like, I, I didn't uh, consider it seriously because I thought it was 
due for an update. And here we are almost uh, over one year later, and it still hasn't been updated. And there's not even really a rumor of an update impending, although they might just surprise us with it. Um, yeah, there were rumors back when I was when I was doing my research, but they kind of died out and they've yeah. never resurfaced. So yeah, at this point, it seems like people don't even care anymore. I mean, I don't I don't see much uh, interest in in online communities, really. Well, I think it's because the culture is very different around flagship DSLRs versus mirrorless. I mean, yes, I think yes, be- of course. because of the pace of development of mirrorless in general, mirrorless users are used to quick pace and they're always, you know, hyped for the next model and things like that. Whereas a lot of the people buying 5D Mark III's right now are sort of the old school photographers who really just want a reliable tool and they're not interested in updating it very frequently. They just want something that is rugged, that is capable, that they're familiar with because they've probably been shooting Canon for 20 years. Right. And so for them, it's like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm excited to see what the 5D Mark IV will bring. But if it's not coming for another two years, like I'm not you know, jumping ship or being upset or anything like that. It's it's fine. I can wait. There's it's just a different attitude, and I don't think it's a bad thing. Um, I just don't know how much longer Canon can live on uh, on just those people because they do have to. I, I think they need to make a bigger push into the mirrorless market. And we've seen a few yeah. rumors floating, um, you know, patents and things like that that indicate a uh, perhaps a next entry into the EOS M family that's not um, crap. <laughs> to, to put it bluntly. Well, actually, Tony is predicting the death of the EOS M mount. <laughs> so it doesn't look like that's going to happen, at least according to him. I don't know. I don't think he's right. I don't think he's right because there was a patent filed for a full frame lens that has the EOS M mount just recently. So right. I don't think they're killing the mount. I think they might be killing the stuff on the other side of it. <laughs> um, yeah, probably. Or replacing it or something like that. But either way, it's uh, Canon is in an interesting spot right now. Yeah, and going back to the rumored Mark IV, the 5D Mark IV, uh, Tony is actually predicting a few interesting things about it that I think are worth discussing. For example, uh, he's predicting that they're going to finally add Wi-Fi and GPS plus uh, touchscreen to the camera, yeah. which is, I mean, <laughs> it's about time. <laughs> But he's also predicting that Canon might add a dual optical and electronic viewfinder to the camera. Like that you could switch between the optical viewfinder and the electronic viewfinder by by using a, a button or whatever. Fuji style. And the reason yeah, and the reason for that is that he says the the Canon implementation of the live view technology is really good. And I don't know if he has some inside information on this or not. But he says that it would make a lot of sense for Canon to sort of give users all the good parts of having an electronic viewfinder while making, well, keeping it as an option. Like, and I suppose, I guess what they what they would do is that when you activate the switch, like the mirror locks up and the electronic viewfinder comes on, takes and, over. Yeah, yeah. So that would be a very interesting feature if they if they do it. I'm not sure they will because again it's not something i see canon doing it's not something that fits with their identity as a as a company it would feel weird but but they might yeah maybe but it might also just be the yeah it might be the first step in them changing direction a little bit uh, you know I, it wouldn't entirely surprise me i i do hope that they don't implement a gps module um unless they can do it without meaningfully impacting battery life because there are better ways to geotag and i think that 
uh, in general, that's a very big battery suck, which again, is not as right. big a concern on a DSLR, but I'd rather they put the Wi-Fi in and then just have a well-developed app that lets me handle the GPS stuff with my phone or separately or whatever. Like, don't, don't make me, <laughs> don't make mm -hmm. me do that. Um, but you never know. I mean, there the touchscreen thing is big, especially if the 5D Mark IV continues the legacy of being very well suited for video, and if they bring the dual pixel autofocus technology in from the 80D and things like that, which currently have uh, really really nice, um, you know, the ability to pull focus between two different points with the touchscreen and things like that. It's very smooth. It's very accurate, and uh, I, I do think that that's something they should bring to the 5D Mark IV, uh, especially if they want to. Um, continue to have people think of it as a potential alternative to a GH4, to an A7S, right? Um, you know, as a sort of mobile videography tool, which the 5D Mark III is still excellent as, by the way. I mean, that's our our B cam for most things, and it's uh, it's it takes excellent footage if you if you know how to get it. So I, I think that they should continue to push that angle because it's something that opens um, doors to a whole other part of the market outside of photography. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the 5D has always been their their flagship, and and I think it's it's going to continue to be. Yeah, especially if they price it right. Because I mean, people, you know, on paper you you'd think that the 1D series is their is their flagship, but really, I look at that as a sort of specialized cousin camera that very few people actually need or buy. Exactly. Um, whereas the 5D is the the everyman, useful in almost all contexts, and capable of almost all photography scenarios camera. Exactly. Uh, that is that is priced accessibly for for you know most professionals. I think. Yeah, I agree absolutely. And then on the Nikon front, Tony was predicting uh, a DA twenty, and this is interesting because he's saying that Nikon's going to wait for Sony to deliver that uh, rumored seventy five megapixel sensor, and that makes. Tony believe that we're not going to see this camera until at least 2017, because if Sony manages to produce these sensors uh, at scale, they're going to want to use them on their own cameras first. And yeah. that makes sense, of course. Yeah. So it looks like we may have to wait a little bit longer before Nikon is allowed to use uh, the sensor for their own cameras. But uh, if that comes, it's going to be a very interesting update as well, because they're going to... Well, he's also predicting the addition of Again, Wi-Fi and touchscreen and all of that. So it looks like we're gonna. It looks like if he gets this right, 2017 is going to be the year that all these nice features that up until recently were only present in mirrorless cameras are going to make their way into the DSLR world, and we're gonna see sort of the baseline is going to be established, and companies are going to have to compete on other features. Yeah, because once every every camera out there has these features, then evidently competition, competition is going to have to shift elsewhere. Yeah, you nailed it. And that's going to be very interesting. That's going to be very interesting to see. Nailed it. And that's that's what we were, I guess, getting at when we were first doing our discussion about mirrorless versus DSLR. I mean, we're seeing the playing field evening out. And that's very exciting for us as consumers, because as we watch these companies battle each other for um, supremacy, we end up benefiting the most. And yes, it means that um, we're going to be tempted by lots of interesting new cameras from each manufacturer, but ultimately it means that whether you choose to use a DSLR or a mirrorless system, you no longer make compromises in terms of, um, I don't want to say gimmicky features, but like things that are not necessarily tied to the core imaging aspect of the camera 
things like the Wi-Fi, things like you know the, the convenience features. Um, and that's amazing because that means that you're making your decision based on um, ultimately the imaging features of each camera, which is uh, what we should be prioritizing, but we often don't because we want those convenience features. Exactly. But I think this is something that's going to come back to haunt DSLR manufacturers, especially Canon and Nikon, because they had a chance to level the playing field a long time ago, and they didn't. And since they failed to implement these basic features, they gave a chance for mirrorless cameras to become entrenched in the market and to, to gain a foothold. And, and they, they basically turned Sony into a legitimate rival and, and legitimate threat. Yep. So I think they could have avoided that because if, they, if they'd come out with touchscreens and Wi-Fi and GPS and all of these uh, nice features three, three years ago, uh, people would have had fewer reasons to switch to Sony yeah. or, or to look at mirrorless. Would have been a very different world. Yeah, so I, I think this, is, this was a strategic mistake on their part. Maybe it was a product of overconfidence or something like that. I'm not sure. And we'll never know, realistically. I mean, who knows what, what was going on behind the scenes there. But either way, it set us up for a very interesting battle between these two technologies and one that, unfortunately, I think DSLRs are not, uh, they're not really going into this fight with um, too many chances of winning in the long term. Because yeah. as as the gap shrinks between them on the image quality front or, you know, is reversed, um, DSLRs are going to have a harder and harder time justifying their, um, their usage. Exactly. Know, like beyond the ecosystem lock-in, what are they left with? Like, why why must you choose a DSLR? If you no longer have speed, if you no longer have battery life, if you no longer have ruggedness, exactly. what do you have? And that's that's precisely the, the what I meant, is that if you asked a DSLR user four years ago, they used to tell you, ah, yeah, those are nice toys, but it, it, those features might be useful, but it's going to be super easy for Canon to copy those, and then why would people ever buy that? that junk, right? Yep. Well, guess what? Canon didn't copy those features. And now the, the image quality gap has narrowed so much that then now the playing field is a lot more even. And and instead, Sony and Olympus and Fuji are copying the DSLR features that professionals want. Exactly. And so the whole thing is going the other way around. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting. I, I, for one, am happy about this. And um, I mean, the best case scenario, I think, is that this whole battle will kick Nikon and Canon into gear and they'll put out a generation of truly remarkable cameras um, and buy themselves some time, essentially, to figure out what the next step is going to be. Right. Uh, and I do, honestly, I hope that that's what happens because I don't want to see the collapse of one technology or, or a company or anything like that. I mean, it's always sad when that happens, especially one that is... Um, has uh, such a storied history uh, and, and has made such tremendous contributions to the industry. But it's not impossible. I mean, we saw it in, in mobile with, with BlackBerry and uh, similar examples. And I, I don't want that to happen. Ultimately, I like an ecosystem that has lots of players that are uh, competing. Right. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll see how it plays out. It's, it, it is going to be a very interesting show. Maybe we get lucky and we can go visit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm right there with you, but... Uh... I honestly like Canon's odds better than Nikon's because Nikon uses Sony sensors in their cameras, so I don't see how they're going to create an image quality gap between them and Sony. Right. It's like their hands are a little bit tied there. So Canon, they develop their own sensors. If they manage to uh, hit a breakthrough discovery or whatever, 
they they could potentially leap ahead. Yeah. But so far they haven't. Uh, so let's let's wait and see how it plays out. Yeah, it's very interesting to watch, definitely. So we've we've done some, you know, we've gone through Tony's predictions and we've kind of filled that in with our own stuff. But what I wanted to know, you know, as a Sony user right now, if you like, what would it take for you to potentially want to switch to an A9 camera? Like, would you consider doing that? If like, would you be willing to make the size trade off and things like that? If the A9 was um, everything that we are hoping it will be? Yes. I think so, because for me, the A7 is already big enough to not be comfortable to use as a daily carry camera. Right. Uh, especially because of the, the the grip is a little bit too thick. Uh, it's not so easy to pocket that camera. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not my ideal uh, everyday carry camera, so I don't use it for that for that purpose. And uh, that means the going to a bigger body wouldn't be an added inconvenience for me. So yeah, if if the new cameras are substantially better, uh, you know, in the image quality front, you, uh, the ruggedness, the weather sealing, and all of that, uh, I could see myself switching. But I'm definitely not going to pay north of six thousand dollars. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I mean the price notwithstanding, but just conceptually, I do see that as a as a pretty happy solution for you, especially if you then end up with an A6300 or whatever its successor ends up being right, exactly. as your exactly. as your sort of walk around, um, not quite pocketable still, but certainly much smaller camera system. Yeah, because the A7 II, I can sort of make work uh, if, I ca- if I have to carry it with me anywhere, I, c- I can make it work. Yeah. Uh, the A6300 would be a lot easier. Uh, of course, but the A9, it just wouldn't work for that for that usage. So I would it it if I got the A9, it would mean the A6300 or a similar APS-C body would no longer be an option for me. It would probably be a requirement at that point. Yeah, and that makes sense. But I'm I'm okay with that. Yeah, I'm okay with that. How about you? Uh... From the wish list to what we'll eventually get, I'm sure there's going to be pretty important differences, but. Uh, have you seen anything here that would make you tempted to make the switch to Sony, for example? Um, it's difficult to say because looking at the, like even assuming that what is predicted here comes to pass, it doesn't, I mean, these cameras don't really solve problems that I have. Right. The improvements that they make are not things that I'm currently aching for in my current setup. So again, like having 75 megapixel resolution, not that helpful. Having 20 frame per second burst rates. I mean, I don't shoot bursts to begin with. Um, so it's just like the, the advancements are not really that compelling. Um, what I would be interested in is, like I said, the, the A7S successor, whatever it ends up being, that could potentially be very interesting. Right. Um, I am very curious to see what the A9 brings to the table in terms of ruggedness and battery life, because that is, you know, those are important factors. Whether they are significant enough for me to want to switch systems for it, I don't know, especially if the price point is so high, because then I've got to, you know, weigh together, like, how many batteries could I buy right. for my X-Pro2 <laughs> right. for $6,000? <laughs> let's make it easier. Let's, All right. Let's say... Not enough to make you switch, but enough to make you jealous. Yeah, I think that I think that there would certainly be enough there to make me jealous of certain aspects. Uh, again, if these actual predictions come to pass in the real world, um, but it would probably not be again not not for the um, A7 series. It would probably uh, A7 or A7R. It would probably be the A7S and the A9 that I would look right. for. 
um, with some longing. But again, we it, it it would have to be it might just be gear lust at that point because again, if I if I put my actual critical thinking cap on here and and just try and look past the new toy temptation, um, none of these specs are really improving the photography that I can do now, and so making such a gigantic investment is kind of senseless. Um, right. But come back to me after Photokina when I may have bought one and then see how I justify it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You never know. It's going to be an interesting September. 